Well, good morning, everybody. I certainly appreciate your endurance. And uh, I also want to remind you, though, that most of you have been sat in the river most of the week. So this, this is not as wet as that. Okay? So look on the bright side. <clears throat> I'd like to read from Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 8 through 10. And then we'll also think a little bit about chapter 4 today in the will of the Lord. So Zechariah 3, verse 8, it says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the gravings thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. And again, we believe God will bless the reading of his precious word to us today. Yesterday, we were thinking about this high priest, Joshua. And we were pointing out that as he drew near to God uh, to minister before God, Satan also drew near and accused him. And basically said, how, God, how could you let this man minister in your house when he is a dirty man? And he was a dirty man. He was, his garments were, as we said yesterday, were excrement covered. It was, he was filthy. And we saw how God rebuked Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And then he cleansed Joshua, uh, removed his filthy garments, cleansed his iniquity, and then clothed him again with priestly garments. And we said that that's a beautiful illustration in the Old Testament of the gospel and what has happened to us. We were once vile and filthy. God has removed our iniquity and he has clothed us with the garments of salvation and he has made us priests. And the Bible talks about us being a holy priesthood. First Peter 2 verse 5. And I want to emphasize that again, that not only are we priests, let me say this, we're to be holy priests. And holiness is important in our priestly service. If we want God to hear us, it talks, for instance, in 1 Timothy 2, 8, uh, that I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It was, God's not going to listen to us if we come and we're dirty. We must be clean. We heard yesterday about 1 John 1, 9. That's where the believer goes for cleansing. If we confess or agree with God concerning our sin, he is faithful. Aren't you glad that he's faithful? And he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we can function as believer priests. But on what basis could God clean a filthy man? On what basis can he do that? And still be a righteous, holy God. And that's why we see chapter 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows, his fellow priests, that sit before thee, thou art men wondered at, or men of sign, men who are, uh, if you like, an example, or a type, or a picture for us. Men of sign. And then he says this. He says, For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. It's only because of God's servant, the branch, that there's any hope of any human being being made clean. 
Now, what do we mean by that, this term, the branch? It's used, actually, quite frequently in the Old Testament. And what it's really talking about is this, that out of the rotten, corrupt stump of the house of Judah, last king of Judah was a man called Zedekiah. He was basically taken into Babylon. His sons were killed before his eyes, and then he was blinded. What a sad end to the Davidic dynasty. And it, all, it seemed like all hope was lost that ever a Messiah would come out of the Davidic line. And here's this rotten stump. But out of that rotten stump came a shoot. And that shoot, that branch, if you like, is the Lord Jesus. Behold my servant, the branch. And I want to just think about this term, the branch, for a little moment because it really is speaking of the Messiah Christ, the future of the nation. And so he mentions, first of all, my servant, the branch. And of course, uh, that takes us to the prophecy of Isaiah. And there are four servant songs there that are talking about the Lord Jesus. And I want to just mention one of them this morning because it's really on my heart to share this with you. Isaiah 50, uh, one of the servant songs describing God's perfect servant, the Lord Jesus. And um, uh, maybe it's not 50, just a minute. It's um, Yeah, Isaiah, it is 50. <clears throat> it says in verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He waketh morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear, uh, as the learned, the Lord hath opened mine ears. I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And it's a beautiful description of the Lord Jesus, God's perfect servant. Notice what it says that in verse 5, The Lord God has opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. There's only one person in human history that that could describe. Somebody whose ear was open to hear direction from heaven and always responded perfectly and was never rebellious. Anybody here never been rebellious? <laughs> one of the first words you learn as an infant, I, I know we have five kids, you know, one of the first words that came out of their mouth after dada <laughs> was no. Right? Rebellion is natural to the... But here's God's perfect servant who was not rebellious. And notice he didn't turn back. Isn't that wonderful? He set his face as a flint to go to the cross. And it's because of God's servant, the Lord Jesus, because of him that a dirty man can be made clean. He went to the cross. They did pluck out the hair from his beard. They did spit in his face. They did nail him to a cross. And there he paid for our sin. But God's righteous servant, yeah, that's the basis that a dirty man can be made clean. <clears throat> also, Isaiah 42 describes God's servant, righteous servant. Behold my servant, verse 1. Uh, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I've put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Notice verse 4. It says, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Uh, you know, that's one of my favorite verses. We just asked, somebody asked me last night, what was my life verse? And of course, uh, that would be Romans 10, 17. But, but, you know, this is one of my favorite verses. 
When I think of my servant, uh, the Lord Jesus, God's servant, the Messiah, what, what I learn about him is that he shall not fail. Isn't that encouraging? Sometimes we look at what's happening. We look at decline on every side. The, the assemblies that we love so much, and many of them are weak, and, and some of them are hanging by a thread, and it looks like, is it ever going to work out? Yes, it is. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will not fail. And then it says, neither be discouraged. You know what? My Savior is not discouraged today. So why should I be discouraged? If he who sat on the throne of the universe isn't discouraged, why should I be? Isn't that encouraging to us? He's not discouraged. So we we see... uh, Christ's perfect servant, the branch. But I want to look at some other references uh, about this branch just for a moment. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Just to show you that this is a common thread in the scriptures, this idea of of a a branch of righteousness uh, or a branch that is coming out of the the line of David. Uh, Verse 1 and 2 of Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so out of this stem of Jesse, this branch shall grow up. Now, we've said that it's my servant, the branch, and I want to just kind of tie this in with the four Gospels. Because one of the Gospels, that's the Gospel of Mark, is the servant Gospel, right? It presents the Lord Jesus as the perfect servant. That's why there's no genealogy. Because whoever cares about the genealogy of a servant? And so Mark's Gospel, he's a man of action. He's straightway doing this, straightway doing that. And he's about the business of being the perfect servant. Now look at Jeremiah. And we look at another reference to the branch uh, as it speaks to the Lord Jesus. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Well, that that reminds us of uh, the descendant of David that would be a king that would be a righteous branch. He would reign in righteousness. And that's the gospel of Matthew, right? Behold my king. It's presenting the righteous branch to us. And so we have that reference in Jeremiah 23. Also, uh, Zechariah 6. We have another reference to a branch. Zechariah 6, verse 12 and 13. It says, And speak to him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, shall bear the glory, shall sit and rule upon his throne, he shall be a priest upon his throne, the council of peace shall be between them both. And so he talks about, Behold the man who is the branch. Well, again, when we look at the four Gospels, we think of Luke's Gospel, Behold the Man, the perfect humanity. His genealogy goes all the way back to Adam because this is, this is the, the Son of Man who's been shown to us, the Lord Jesus. Behold the man who is the branch. And one more, Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2 would give us our final Gospel. That would be the Gospel of John. Isaiah 4, verse 2, and again we have a reference to a branch, Isaiah 4, 2, and it simply says this, In that day shall the branch of 
the Lord or the branch of Jehovah be beautiful and glorious. And of course, uh, the gospel of John is the gospel of the Lord from heaven, the Son of God. Again, no genealogy because where does it begin? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? Because it's emphasizing the deity of Messiah. And so again, the only righteous basis that God could ever cleanse a filthy man is based on the work of my servant, the branch. It's because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Now, of course, we could go on and talk more about the stone as well. He says, behold, in verse 9, the stone that I've laid before Joshua. And of course, Christ is the stone, isn't he? He's the cornerstone. He's the stumbling stone. He's the smiting stone. Uh, We could just go on and on and talk about how the Lord Jesus throughout the Bible is the stone. And so again, what it's saying is the only righteous basis that any dirty man or woman could ever be cleansed and made a priest before God is because of the work of his servant, the branch, the Lord Jesus who is also the stone, and he's the stone that was smitten. We just read about um, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water from John chapter 4, and John chapter 7 talks about that. But but it's a picture really of of that incident back in the uh, book of Exodus where Jehovah's rod struck the, the rock and the water flew out. And, and so the, that's the picture of Christ's blessing flowing out to a, a dry and thirsty world as a result of God's punishment of his son, allowing blessing to come out to the human race. And what a tremendous thing it is. Now we want to look at Zechariah chapter 4. And you notice that I'm putting the pedal to the metal a little bit today because I'm realizing, and of course, Brother Rex is going to have to do the same as well because he kept saying right at the beginning, he said, I'm going to do two gates every session. You notice that he's not doing very well on that, is he? (laughs) (coughs) Zechariah chapter 4 is about a lampstand. And it's a, a, a vision of encouragement to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a great name, isn't it? It's a name that expresses faith in the parents. You know what it means? Return from Babylon. See, he was most likely born in captivity, and his parents expressed their faith and their hope in the promises of God and named their son Return from Babylon. And Zerubbabel is actually in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, uh, he is in the Davidic line. He's going to be the governor of Judah, but uh, he is in the royal family uh, and the the line of the Messiah. And so God is going to encourage Zerubbabel, this civil ruler who will be the governor of Jerusalem, And of course, the big question is this. After 70 years in captivity, will Israel ever be a light among the nations again? Because he describes this lampstand. It's the the Jewish menorah that we know of, right? The seven-branch candlestick. And that's what this chapter is all about, this this lampstand. And the question is this. After 70 years of, of, in a sense, humiliation in captivity in Babylon, will this nation ever be a light for God again? That's the big question that hangs over the chapter. 
And again, it's a good question that we could ask ourselves because God uses that same picture of a lampstand to describe the churches, doesn't he? Revelation chapter 1, the seven churches in Asia, he talks about them as being seven lampstands. Now, when you think of a lampstand in the biblical sense of the word, what does it tell us about a lampstand? One thing about a lampstand is it's to dispense light, right? That's, and that's what, that's what an assembly is meant to be, something that shows the light of God in a dark world. Right? We're meant to be lights in a dark place. But a lampstand, biblically, is oil-dependent. No oil, no light. Right? You can have the most beautiful candelabra, right? but if you don't have any oil, you don't have any light. So it fits in with the fountain gate, doesn't it? The Spirit of God. Because in, in Scripture, we know that oil is often used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And of course, it's true. How could we be a light? Well, you look at the, the beginning of the church, and you look at those 120 men that are locked, men and women that are locked in this upper room with the doors bolted, petrified. What hope is there of evangelizing the world? How's that going to work? One of their their most vocal proponents of Christianity, out of fear, had denied the Lord with oaths and cursings. It doesn't look good, does it? But Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says what? After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, what he's saying is that how God is going to take these 120 fearful people and use them to turn the world upside down is because of the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to notice something about chapter 3 and chapter 4. Apart from the obvious that chapter 4 follows chapter 3. Here's the other thing about it. Chapter 3 talks about cleansing chapter 4 talks about empowering that order is essential god is not going to empower a dirty vessel he just isn't what god has to do if you're dirty as a believer the spirit of god is not going to be flowing through you and out to a world the spirit of god is going to be directed inwardly to you to convict you to get right as an assembly you're not going to be a bright light for god if there's sin in the camp because the spirit's energy is not going to be working through you it's going to be working directing you to fix the problem and until you fix the problem all the spirit's energy is inward focused Get this sorted before I can flow through you and out to a world. So there must be cleansing before there can be empowering. If you want to enjoy power in your life in terms of ministry for God, God is not going to use a dirty vessel. And that's why we talked yesterday about our assemblies and the need of repentance. These squabbles that have gone on for years need to be dealt with. These, these silly little issues that bug us so much, we need to get over it and get on with it. Because the Lord is coming. And the opportunities of service are running out. The night's coming when no man can work. You're supposed to be the light of the world. 
And what did the Lord Jesus say will be our greatest witness to a lost and dying world? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by what? You're carrying a big black Bible under your arm, wearing a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie. Is that what he said? No, he said, by your love one toward another. And if we don't love one another, we're giving a bad message to a lost and dying world, aren't we? And so what the Lord is saying is, clean up your act. I want to use you. I want the Spirit of God is anxious to use you in abundant ways. But he's not going to use you if you're dirty. Get clean. Deal with the issues corporately, individually. We, we have some massive issues. I've spoken several times in various places on pornography. And on every occasion, I have a, a queue of people coming up to talk to me about their addiction to pornography. And I'm asking, how can God ever bless our assembly when there's such vile things going through the minds of the saints? Listen, we've got to get real. God's not going to bless that. We have to confess our sin and forsake it. And, and I talk to these people about it and I say, well, you're taking any measures. You know, have you got some kind of accountability structure with someone else? You know, you can get it so every, every site you go on is sent to someone else. Are you, are you taking And No, don't even have a filter. And I say, well, you're not serious. You're not serious about dealing with sin. You're talking to me about it, but you, if you're not going to take any measures, listen, this, is, this could destroy your life. I, I know people, their marriage is gone, their kids, they've lost respect for them. Uh, I mean, their ministry's shot. Their life, in a sense, for God is done. We've got to get serious, you see. This is, uh, and we want this empowerment. Now, this, this lampstand, what's amazing about it is, uh, again, if, if I had a kind of a whiteboard, I could draw it for you, but it's really interesting. You've got the seven uh, branches, and above it, there's a bowl. And out of this bowl, there's pipes that go into each of the seven uh, lampstands. And then at the side of it, there's two olive trees, and there's branches coming out of the olive trees, and out of the olive trees flows oil into the bowl, out of the bowl, through the seven uh, pipes into the lampstand. And what it's picturing is this, an abundant supply of oil. Now, let me say something. And, and again, I appreciate uh, Rex and, and, and particularly uh, Romans chapter 8 being such a spirit-filled chapter. But I see a real danger in our circles. And that is this. I remember as a young Christian, our church wasn't an assembly being split with the charismatic movement. People went away on a weekend retreat. They came back. They'd had some kind of experience and they were gone. And what happened was, like a pendulum swing, our assembly went to a place where nobody dare mention the Holy Spirit for two years for fear of being labeled charismatic. Now, we reacted against extremism on one side, and we became equally in error on the other side. We, because of our dispensational theology... We believe there won't be another Pentecost. You agree with that? Right? There's not going to be another, another Calvary, and there's not going to be another Pentecost, right? 
In other words, uh, when I got saved, uh, I wasn't born at Calvary, was I? I mean, I mean, that was years before I was born. But I entered into the good of what was done on Calvary. Neither was I born on Pentecost either. But I, when I was saved, I entered into the good of what happened on the day of Pentecost. I was placed into the body of Christ and the Spirit of God was placed in me. But here's the danger. Because we say there's not going to be another Pentecost, most of our assemblies have no expectation of any movement of the Holy Spirit whatsoever. Right? What do you expect the Spirit to do in your assembly? Do you even think about it? Well, let me tell you, Acts 4 comes after Acts 2. We're learning a lot of really profound things this week, aren't we? Well, you know what's interesting is, on Acts chapter 4, they prayed for boldness to speak in the name of Jesus. And it says that the place where they prayed was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the word with boldness. Now, that was after Pentecost. But it definitely was a fresh empowering of the Spirit of God to preach the gospel. Wasn't it? What I'm saying is, our assemblies, some of them are so sick, they really are. And, and I go to the prayer meeting, and they, all they ever pray about is sick people. You ever heard that? I mean, that's what it's all about. It's like we don't ever want to die or don't ever want to be unwell. Well, that's not reality, is it? We're going to die, and we're probably going to die as a result of sickness. Right? Now, again, I understand if, if you're sick, it's good to be prayed for. And, but I, I suggest going to their house or their hospital, get on your knees at the side of the bed and pray with them. But in the prayer meeting, what do we pray for? Here's an assembly and it's dying. And all we ever pray for is sick people. And we never pray about the situation. It's like there's an elephant in the room and nobody's saying anything about it. Lord, we're dying. What's the problem? Is there sin in the camp? Is there any way that, that you can do something because we're dying? Ichabod is written over the doors here. How do they pray in the New Testament? The prayers of the New Testament are radical, aren't they? Paul prayed for saints that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that a great prayer? Why don't we pray that in our prayer meeting? What would happen to your assembly if every believer was filled with the fullness of God? You'd hardly recognize it, would you? The Philippian assembly, in my opinion, probably the most loving assembly in the New Testament. And Paul prays for them that their love would abound yet more and more. This guy, what's wrong with him? I mean, is he never satisfied? This is the most loving assembly. And he's saying, no, that's not enough. We want more. We want our love to be overflowing. You see, what a testimony that would be. And so all I'm saying is that, that we want the Spirit of... Do you want the Spirit of God to work in your assembly? You see, I want to see revival. I think our assemblies are dying. Well, Jesus said, when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I'm beginning to believe that. But I don't want that to be the case. And I believe God can revive the church. Now, I'm not one of these guys, hang on to the rapture, white knuckle ride. This is the way it's going to be. Like, that's what people say, well, we're in the end times. Listen, in the tribulation period, 
one of the greatest revivals in human history will take place. It says there's going to be a great multitude saved that nobody can number them. So if God can do that in the darkest period in human history, He can do it in in North America right now, in our assemblies right now. But when the Welsh revival occurred in 1904, the question was asked, what's the secret? And the answer was given, there's no secret. You have not because you ask not. That interesting. When did you last pray in your assembly for revival? I think it would be a great idea if our assemblies would cancel every meeting except the Lord's Supper for a week at the start of every year and spend the week in prayer and fasting. For God's blessing on our meetings. Would that be a good idea? I think that would be a great idea. All I'm saying is that Zechariah 3 clearly tells us they've got to be cleansing. Chapter 4 tells us, verse 6, how's this going to happen? How, how are they going to rebuild the temple? How are they going to be a light for God amongst the nations? He answered and spake to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's how it's going to happen. That's how they're going to be a light for God again is by the Spirit of God. Now, I want to think about that verse. We, we, we kind of read it and quote it, but, but what does it really mean? The word might, not by might, is used 56 times in the Old Testament for military might or military power. What he's saying is God's work is not going to be done by military power. I wish that some of the theologians of the past had understood that. One of the reasons it's so difficult to reach Islam is because of the Crusades. It's a kind of a blot that hangs over the Christian world, isn't it? What was happening? Now, again, this is the Catholic Church and all the rest of it, you know, probably very few true believers at the time. But what they tried to do was the work of God in military might. In Ireland, one of the difficulties we had in the south of Ireland was that the name Protestant was an anathema. Why? Because Oliver Cromwell, who was a born-again Christian, the guy who said, to hell or to Connaught, and basically as he went through Ireland, uh, basically driving people to the west of the country where he said that there wasn't enough clay to bury a man, enough wood to hang a man, enough water to drown a man. And he drove the Catholics there so that the Protestants could move and have the good land. And so you just don't tell anybody that you're a Protestant if you're working in Ireland. Mind you, I'm not a Protestant anyway. <laughs> I've got something better than protest, right? I'm a positive believer in the Lord Jesus. But nevertheless, what we're saying is when God's work is done in military might, it doesn't work. He says, not by military might, nor by power. Fifty-eight times in the Old Testament, it's used for human strength. Do we really believe that God's work is not going to be done in human strength? I wonder sometimes. If I was to ask you, What would be the best way to reach the intellectuals of Cambridge University? You know what you'd say? Well, Dr. Gooding or Dr. Lennox. That's what you'd think. Now, no disrespect for Dr. Gooding and Dr. I appreciate them immensely. 
But you know who God used to move Cambridge University more than any other human being has ever moved Cambridge University? D.L. Moody. A Massachusetts shoe clerk. He couldn't even pronounce car properly. (laughs) Right? I mean, he, he butchered the English language. And here he is preaching, and out of that came the Cambridge Seven, including C.T. Studd, that went to China as missionaries. God used D.L. Moody in a tremendous way. We would have never have thought of D.L. Moody. Because we think, and that's what happens in our assemblies, we see this guy, he's a successful bank manager. Oh, he'd make a good elder. Nonsense. He could be the most unspiritual brother in the meeting. Right? That's not how we deal with that. God's work is not done by human intelligence or strength. God delights to use the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the mighty. Aren't you glad? That kind of lets us in, doesn't it? I'll never be a John Lennox. I thank God for him, but I can barely do math. That guy's a genius in math, right? But can God use my life? Sure he can. Because if he uses someone like me, you know, at the end of it all, who's going to get the glory? God's going to get the glory, isn't he? And that's the point. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We want to see God work in our day. And there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot more we can say about chapter 4, but time is moving. But I want to encourage us today, if you want to know the fullness and power of the Spirit of God, you first have got to be clean. You've got to be serious about being real about your sin in the presence of God. Individually, and if there's elders in assemblies here, can I say corporately? We cannot continue the way we are and expect the blessing of God. We've got to deal. If, if you've got something against a brother or a sister, can I ask you, look, humble yourself and go to that person and deal with the issue. Don't wait. I, I, I listened to a guy recently and he says, I'll wait till the judgment seat. Don't wait till the judgment seat. Do it today. That's wrong thinking. Let's get it dealt with. Because we want to see God blessing us again, don't we? I long to see the Spirit of God work in my assembly in a mighty way. To see the power of God in the preaching of the gospel, even tonight. Don't you want that? So what are we asking for? What do we really want? I appreciate you sitting here in the rain. But really what we really want is showers of blessing, don't we? But God will not bless if we do not follow his instructions. Cleansing followed by empowerment. We want to be a light for God in a dark world. We need oil. (laughs) The Spirit of God is needed to have freedom in our our remembrance meetings. We need the Spirit to direct the orchestra, don't we? We're desperately in need of the Spirit's working in our assembly. So let not kind of react to the charismatic nonsense by becoming equally guilty and swinging to the other extreme where we make the Spirit of God redundant in our meetings. We desperately need 
the person and work of the Spirit of God in our own lives and corporately in our assemblies. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before Thee and we would ask of Thee for the assemblies that are represented here that there would be honesty in the presence of God, that You would humble us so that we might be willing to deal with issues, perhaps some that have been going on for years, and to put things right, to have restoration amongst our believing brethren. Our Father, we pray too that the assemblies and the believers in them would be filled with all the fullness of God. That the word of the Lord in our meetings would have free course and be glorified. That our love would abound yet more and more in all knowledge and in all judgment. We'll give thee the glory. In the name of our lovely and precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.